book of Ephesians tells a cosmic story of God's plan for God's people. God invites us to participate in the sound of heaven reverberating on earth. There has been an unseen battle raging from the beginning of time. Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness, and God plans to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. This cosmic plan is in Christ's body, the church. The church is God's most powerful means of transforming the world and is central to God's eternal purposes. The church displays Christ's power as he loves and blesses his people despite their sin as he unifies them despite their differences. The church is the unstoppable vehicle of Christ's powerful love and grace, moving with unstoppable power until Christ fills all in all. Well, good morning. Yeah, this, uh, we didn't test the mic earlier. I actually forgot until just now to put it on, so you're welcome. Is it okay? Good? Maybe a little down a little bit? Well, good morning if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you. My name is John. I lead Mission Church's lead pastor, and uh, here at Mission Church, we desire to partner with God to see His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven as we love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. And last week, we launched a new sermon series through the book of Ephesians entitled, God's Plan for God's People. Do you know that God has a plan for His people? In all of our brokenness, despite all of our weaknesses, He plans to use us, the church, to transform the world. And if you have a Bible, please grab it, open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we spent our time together in just verses 1 through 2. And so we'll be at verse 3. Now, if you don't have a Bible, or if you didn't pick up one of the Scripture journals last week, you feel free to do so on the table back there even now if you'd like. There's the Scripture journals for Ephesians in which you can take notes, and that, that's our gift to you. So feel free to grab that um, for our time together. Now, it's possible that this passage of Scripture, verses 3 through 14, are a grammar teacher's worst nightmare. As in the original Greek, it's one long 202 run-on word, 202-word run-on sentence. It's jam-packed, full of priceless truth. There's so much treasure in this next section that we're going to actually take the next three weeks to go through it. And this morning, we're going to focus on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us and the Beloved One. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. My goal this morning is to help make sense of this text both practically and relationally, especially regarding the work of the Father. The work of the Father. 
And how it is that someone becomes a believer? How does that happen? What are the principles and what is the processes involved? How is it that we ever come to a saving knowledge, a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Before we answer those questions and before we dive into our text, let's take a moment to pray together. God, uh, we're desperate for You. We're so grateful for your, Your Word that You've given to us. Lord, everything that we need to know, You have already said in the Word that, that is before us this morning. And even in these, just these few verses, there's so much here. And I pray, Lord, that You would soften our hearts to, so that we might understand. Lord, Holy Spirit, would You move in this room today in opening our ears and, and opening our eyes and, and our hearts to receive the good news of the Gospel. That it might not just go in one ear and out the other, but it might change us. Lead us to faith. Lead us to a, a zeal to live on mission for You. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and beautiful in Your sight. You are my rock and Redeemer. Lord, help us as we work through some of these difficult truths that are presented to us in this text. And know that this is the standard of which is true. And help us to conform to the truth presented to us this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness and Your grace and Your love and mercy. And we give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. In the 1994 cinematic masterpiece, The Lion King, young Simba was the heir to the throne. His dad, King Mufasa, was intent on training and preparing young Simba to be king, for he knew the difficulties that came with leading all the animals. Well, one day, evil Uncle Scar set in motion a diabolical plan that resulted in King Mufasa's death. And Uncle Scar, well, in an effort to take the kingdom for himself, in an effort to take the throne, he blamed young Simba for the death of his father, Mufasa. And Simba, not knowing any better, he took the blame. He believed him, and, and he lived in guilt and shame. Overwhelmed by this guilt and shame, Simba, he takes off to the shadow land. He ran away with a plan to waste his life, to wallow in guilt, to wallow in shame, blaming himself for ruining the kingdom that he was supposed to take over. Well, he ends up making a couple of friends who lighten the mood a little bit. They lead him along a carefree path. The motto was, Akuna Matata, no worries. Just take life as it come. Eat, drink, be merry. And Simba, he follows their lead. That is, until one day a wise old monkey named Rafiki shows up with a stick and he hits Simba across the head. And he says, hey, I know you. You're Mufasa's boy. And Simba in shock says, you knew my father? Correction, I know your father. Simba replies, no, you see, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong, old weird monkey man thing. You got it all wrong. He died because of me. I'm a failure. I've messed up. I've ruined the kingdom. It's all my fault. And Rafiki, the old monkey, laughs at him and says, you're wrong. He's still alive. And Simba's like, no way. And they go for a chase, right? They're running through places and through the woods, ultimately leading him to a puddle of water. And he tells them, look at the water. And Simba does. And he sees a reflection of himself, and he says, bro, this is just my reflection. 
you're a weird old monkey. And Rafiki tells him, look harder. So Simba does, and he sees the reflection, not of himself, but of his father. And then he hears the voice reverberate from the heavens. Simba, (laughs) remember who you are. He says, you're my son. You're meant to be more than what you've become. You've gotten off track. You've lost focus. You're not just Timon and Pumbaa's buddies. Son, you are the Lion King. There's a design for your life, a great purpose that you have been created for. And like Mufasa, Paul begins this letter in Ephesians in the same way, crying out to you and me, remember who you are. You see, remembering who you are and whose you are not only infuses meaning and purpose into your life, but it results in a life of praise, a life of worship, a life that is focused on glorifying the one to whom you belong. In fact, the chief end of all that God does is the magnification of His glory, the exaltation of His glory. Everything else is a means to this end. And the pursuit of the glory of God is not just His grand aim, the chief purpose, the overriding goal of God's own heart, but it must also be the ultimate passion and the chief goal of the hearts of His people. See, you and I, we're being invited into a celebration this morning. We're being invited to glorify, to exalt, to praise God for His lavish gift of grace that He has so graciously poured onto us through His Son, Christ Jesus. And in these opening verses here, Paul performs for us a symphony of praise that includes three majestic crescendos. One, the emphasis of praise. Two, the reason for praise. And three, the reaffirmation of praise. And so let's look now to number one, the emphasis of praise. And look at verse three. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Underline or take note of this word blessed. It means to give honor, specifically in this context, to give honor to God, to glorify God, to give praise to God. Paul, with this one word, he lifts up his conductor's baton, and the symphony begins with a loud note of praise. And this symphony is meant to ignite our hearts, to set a fire within us, a holy passion for God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now Paul, in verses 3-6, through he's specifically identifying the first person of the Trinity. In fact, as we work through this section 3-14 through over the next few weeks, you'll see that his section's broken up in in a specific way. Verses 3-6, through he's praising God the Father. In verses 7-11, through he's praising God the Son. In verses 12-14, through he's praising God the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're looking specifically at the work of God the Father. He's pointing us to Him as the original source of all our blessings. Everything we have has been gifted and given to us from God our Father, who has opened the windows of heaven and has lavishly, extravagantly poured out His grace and goodness upon us. And we're going to talk about this word later on in our book, but this word lavish is essentially extravagant. It's a, it's a word that's that's used when you're wasteful of things. You're extravagantly, lavishly pouring out His blessings. And we'll talk about that later, but I think this is an important word that's in our text. Um, 
that speaks to the heart of God as He's lavishly, wastefully, extravagantly pouring out His grace and mercy upon us. Now, look back at verse 1. Sorry, verse 3. We did verse 1 last week. Verse 3, second half. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Notice first that Paul's emphasis are not on material blessings. There's nothing wrong with material blessings, but material blessings are here today, gone tomorrow. His focus is not on such, but rather his focus is on spiritual blessings. His focus is on that which is the most precious, that which is the most valuable. He focuses on blessings which money cannot buy and death cannot take away. In fact, as Paul writes this letter, he's in prison in Rome. He's chained to a Roman soldier for 24-7. In fact, the reality lasted for two years, his reality chained to a Roman guard in prison, awaiting trial before Caesar. Caesar, who had the power to to give or take Paul's life away. And yet, as we read these words, you would think that Paul is not writing from that scenario, but he's writing from a place of comfort. Because his heart is overwhelming with praise. His heart is is overflowing with gratitude for God. Paul's not whining. He's worshiping. He's not pouting. He's praising. Why? Because his circumstances are not dictating or regulating his spiritual blessings. His blessings were not found in his circumstances or current events. But his blessings were found in Christ alone. Make note or underline this phrase, in Christ. This is perhaps Paul's favorite prepositional phrase as it's used throughout all of his letters, but multiple times within the letter to the Ephesians. But this phrase speaks to the believer's position. It speaks to the fact that we are united with Christ, that we are joined to Christ. In fact, apart from being in Christ, there are no spiritual blessings. For Jesus Christ, He is the sole mediator between God and man. You see, we are united to the One who is above every earthly power, above every authority, for now and for all eternity. You see, Jesus has risen from the grave with power over sin and power over death. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's ruling and He's reigning. His power and privileges far exceed anything here on earth. And all who have trusted in Jesus as Savior and submitted to Him as Lord share in His glory and His goodness. In other words, the beauty of a desert sunset, the power of a Midwestern storm, the purity of my four-year-old's prayer, the majesty of a hero's glory, the wonder of love's passion, the hope of eternal glory, righteousness and holiness, the power over sin and the defeat of death are all in Christ, all of Christ, all under Christ, and all are by Christ. For all of these things reflect the wonder, the majesty, the purity, and the beauty of who He is. Mission Church, because we are in union with Christ, those things are ours too. And so we join Paul in his symphony of praise for all that God has done and all that God continues to do for us and through us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, today you might find yourself in a challenging circumstance or a difficult situation. In fact, the world may seem to be falling apart all around you. The wheels of your life may feel like they're going flat and flying off the highway. 
But I'm here this morning to declare to you that our eternal outlook is not determined by our present difficulties. God remains on His throne. He remains in control. God is sovereign. And every good and perfect gift comes down from His throne for those who are in Christ. Now, let's look to verses 4 through 5. It's here where Paul's second crescendo of praise resounds. And we're introduced to the reasons or the grounds for why God is to be praised. You see, our devotion to God is always, it's always rooted in doctrine. It's always rooted in an understanding of who God is. It's rooted in the truths of Scripture. If our praise is not rooted in who God is and in doctrine and in the truths of the Bible, that praise may be not of God. It's always rooted. Doxology is always rooted in doctrine. You see, our devotion is always rooted in our understanding of who God is. And this next section is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Verse or Number two, the reason for praise. The reason for our praise is rooted and grounded in the sovereign election of God. This phrase, sovereign election of God, should inspire awe. It should inspire worship, but unfortunately, this phrase inspires people mostly to tense up. But understand, these are are Bible words. They're biblical words. In fact, the Bible is a book of election. The idea of God choosing people to display His glory is seen all throughout Scripture. Consider the fact that God chose to create the world for His glory. God chose Abraham to bring His glory to the nations. God chose the nation of Israel that they might be a light to the nations. Jesus chose His twelve disciples and in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, we see that God chose what is insignificant and despised in the world so that no one can boast in His presence. In several New Testament texts, we read that God chose individuals for salvation, both Jew and Gentile. They make up the church, Christ's body. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 summarizes this doctrine quite well. It says, election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all that means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. Now, with all this in mind, hang with me because we're going to look at the text and be faithful to what this text says. Walk carefully through it as it features uh, a multiple... I guess it has multiple features of this doctrine of election within it, beginning with the architect of election. If you're taking notes, we're going to go through a bunch of bullets here, bullet points. The architect of election. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, For He chose us in Him. Underline or take note of this word, He. Who is the He that Paul is referring to in verse 4? Well, He is God the Father. God the Father is the architect and the author, and He takes the lead in the divine work of election. The divine work of choosing, which is the act of election, the second point. Paul writes, for He chose. This word chose is a Greek word that means to choose one out of the many. To choose one out of many options. 
And it speaks of God choosing those whom He would set His grace upon. In other words, out of the fallen human race, God sovereignly sets His heart upon those He would save. God makes a distinguishing choice. God sovereignly chooses individually His people. I'm reminded of my son this past week. There was a book fair at his school, and boy, my kids were pumped. They were excited. You would think it was a holiday. And well, my son, he had a plethora of options before him, a multitude of books. And as he walks into the book fair, he set his affection on one book in particular, the 3D shark book. And he chose that book. He chose it by himself, and he chose it for himself. And he walked out of there as he set his affections on that particular book. In the same way, God chose us by Himself and for Himself, which leads us to the object of election. The object of election. For He chose us. Underline us. God chose us, and this word us speaks to last week when we looked at verses 1-2. through It speaks of all the saints that Paul referred to in verses 1. In verse 1. And those who would receive God's grace and peace in verse 2. It speaks to the specific name of believers, the number of believers whose names were recorded in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, which we read in the book of Revelations. In other words, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is only because God sovereignly chose you in eternity past to be His. This leads to the location of election. For He chose us in Him. Mission Church, election is always and only in Christ. We are not chosen by any good in us. God only accepts us because He chose to put us in union with Christ. He chose us not because of anything special in us. In fact, He chose in spite of us. There was nothing and is nothing we did or could ever do to earn or deserve His choosing. No. It is all because of Christ. It's all undeserved grace. And nothing speaks to this truth more than when we consider when it was God did His choosing. Consider now the time of election. Look back at verse 4. For He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. I resonate with the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who wrote in his autobiography, he said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And I'm sure He chose me before I was born or else He never would have chosen me afterwards. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find my, in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Think about this, Christian. Before God created the heavens and the earth, in fact, this word translated as world in our text comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means that before God flung the planets in the sky and and placed the stars in the sky, He chose you. Consider 1 Timothy 1.9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus when? Before time began. Now the question is begging to be asked, why? Why? Why did God, before He ever created the world, why did He choose a people for Himself? And that's a good question. I'm I'm glad that you asked. 
Let's look back at verse 4 and, and notice the goal. The goal of election. For He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. Friends, this speaks to the fact that God didn't just choose us for heaven, but He has chosen us for holiness, for Christ's likeness, to love Jesus, to live like Jesus. These words, holy and blameless, speak to the spiritual blessings we receive in Christ. See, there was a time before God gifted you with saving faith. Before God made you alive when you were spiritually dead. You see, your heart was dead, cold and calloused. But God, and we'll see this in chapter 2, rich in mercy, did an initiating work of grace in your heart. God called you and you responded. He made you alive together with Christ. In other words, when you come to Christ by way of God's initiating call, you have something removed and then something supplied. Your blame is removed. Your shame is removed. Your guilt is removed. All that justly condemns you is no longer held against you. Just as Jesus is without blemish because of His life, His death, and His resurrection, on your behalf, your blemishes have been wiped clean. You have been made blameless. Now, let's be honest, despite this truth, many of us who are Christians are living with some level of guilt, some level of shame, some level of blame, our weaknesses, the uncertainty of the world we live in, and all of our sin and the remembering of sin that is forgiven, that comes to mind, all of that has the potential to shame us. But the glory of the Gospel is that our Heavenly Father has removed our debt. He has nailed your debt to the cross. And He no longer blames you for what shames you. That's good news, ladies and gentlemen. And not only does our union with Jesus remove something off of our ledger, but He adds something into our ledger. He removes our blemishes, but He also supplies us with righteousness. We are holy and blameless before the Father. The righteousness, the perfect obedience of Jesus is gifted to you. You see, the holiness that God requires of you, He also supplies he puts that on your leisure by the good work of Jesus. Not by your good works, but by our union with Jesus who shares with us His holy status. This is amazing, and it speaks to the fact that God doesn't just pay off your debt and leave you with a zero balance, but He fills that baby up because of Christ's obedience. Our God opens up the vaults and lavishly pours out His blessings on us his grace his mercy rip one layer of mercy off there's a whole nother layer of mercy you cannot with overdraw from this account it's filled one day brothers and sisters we will stand before the throne of god and you will stand in the immediate presence of god the father who is holy and you will do so holy and blameless, completely conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 5, for it's here that we see the motive of election. In verse 4, it says, in love. In love. Now, there's some debate on whether or not this phrase in love goes with verse 4 or verse 5. Meaning that 
in verse 4 that we should be holy and blameless and live in love, which is true. Or verse 5, speaking to God's attitude or God's motive in election. Like I said, both of these would be true. The CSB version in which we use here at Mission Church has it within verse 4. But as I studied the Greek text, I believe that it goes with verse 5. If you have an ESV Bible, that's how it translates it. I believe that the original manuscript is pointing to the fact that it's the motive of election. So rather, it reads, in love He predestined us. It was the motive of this, His electing. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. In love, He predestined us. This speaks to the fact that God, His motive in election is love. And this is helpful. This is a helpful note for some might say, how is this fair? You might be thinking this now as you sit there. How could a loving God choose some and not others? And you're right. Kind of. Remember, every person is a sinner by nature. And by choice, we have all sinned. Every person besides Christ that has ever walked this earth has fallen short, has missed the mark, has removed the crown off of God's head and, and put it on their own. And the consequence of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Eternal separation from God in a very real place called hell that consists of eternal torment. So fair would God be fair would be God justly dropping the hammer on all of us and giving us exactly what we deserve, exactly what we have earned. For every one of us, what we deserve is hell. That's what we have earned. See, God saving just one person, God choosing one person and saving one person would be absolutely amazing. Would show His lavish and extravagant mercy But the fact that He has chosen for Himself a people, a multitude of people that we could not count, that He would rescue from sin and death through the death of His own Son speaks to His amazing love and grace. See, when we trace this river of grace upstream to the spring where it first begins to flow from the throne of God, it was the distinguishing love of God that put this all in motion before the foundation of the world, the text says. And again, this is not because of us, but it's in spite of us. This is something that we have done nothing and could do nothing to earn. God has not chosen us because there's anything special in us. He did not look down the corridors of time and see those who would choose Him. That's that's a fallacy. That's not in the text. He has chosen us for reasons only He knows. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Think about this. Before you could do anything of merit, God chose to love you. Before creation, before Genesis 1-1, we see that God chose you before any nationality, family, or personal achievement would warrant His love for you. Before your journey ever began, God predestined you. Your horizon had already been marked out. God has already foreordained the salvation of those He has chosen. It was settled. And there's nothing that you and I can do to undo the sovereign choice of God in eternity past towards us. Look back at verse 5 and and see now the result of election. Or, in other words, what it is we're predestined for. The result of election, verse 5. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Underline this word adopted. 
Mission Church, God has bestowed upon us an inheritance of riches that belong to Him. And we become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You see, we aren't just citizens of a kingdom. We aren't just subjects of a kingdom. We're not servants. We're not even just simply friends. But we are sons and daughters in the family of God. Consider also Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And Galatians 4.4 says that when time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, which is a very intimate interaction. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Mission Church, this electing work of God leads to our spiritual glory. It's an unspeakable, incomprehensible blessing for us to be made alive, to be given a new heart, a spiritual life. Think about this. If God's gift of spiritual blessings ended with God simply freeing us from sin and death, declaring us as having righteousness, No one would question God's goodness in that. No one would ever question God's grace. But in extravagant love, He ups the ante. He takes it a step further. He not only gives us life through a new birth, but He adopts us into His family. And He does this so that we may relate to Him not only as the giver of spiritual life and the provider of legal righteousness, but also as our loving and compassionate Father. There are some theologians who say that adoption is the highest privilege that the Gospel offers. Because you can't get any higher than to be a son of God and one whom Jesus calls brother and sister. And God didn't do this and doesn't do this begrudgingly. But according to, what does the verse say? The good purpose of His will. Why did God adopt us? I don't know. Sorry, the text doesn't tell us. I don't know why God adopts us. All I know is that He's pleased to do so. God was delighted to adopt you. And I don't know about you, but it blows my mind. And I really, and really the only appropriate response is that which Paul gives us in verse 6. But before we get there, I don't have it in my notes, but I keep thinking of this, this thing I read this past week in regards to adoption. And so bear with me. I don't know if I remember it fully, and it may not help, (laughs) but I want to talk about it. So, adoption in this time, as they're reading this, the original readers of this text would have been familiar with a a horrendous um, cultural thing that happened um, in the city of Ephesus and in any kind of Roman-led cities. Um, They were were very focused on on looks and and build and, and stature. I don't know if you guys can relate to that in our Instagram age, but in that time, they were heavily focused on perfection and, and how one looks. And, and so, if a baby was born who had a, a blemish or a problem or an issue, there was this place that they would go and they would drop off that baby to die and just leave the baby there because they just they wanted perfection. Well, there are some moms and dads who would go to this mountain and they would adopt these children, but not as sons and daughters, but to be slaves, to be servants. And so these 
children would grow up in these homes as, as slaves and servants. Um, and so as they're reading this, as the original audience would hear this, and hear that God is not adopting you who are a sinner, who have blemishes, who are broken, who are, are, are nothing in and of yourself that would amount to anything, and to read this and see that God who created the universe, who created all things, chooses to adopt you not as a servant, not as a slave, but as a daughter and as a son who is given every ounce of inheritance that a, an adult son or daughter would have. It's absolutely amazing. You have been adopted by the King of the universe to be His son and daughter. This is not something that we should take and debate in debate halls about why would God do this, but that God would adopt any of us at all and give us an extravagant, lavish pouring out of grace and mercy and taking away our blemishes and, and crediting, to, crediting to us the righteousness of Christ. That the Spirit is at work in us who are sons and daughters, drawing us to Himself, changing our desires, conforming us to the Father, the, the Son. And one day, you and I will stand before this, the Father. Complete. is a work of God. This is amazing. And we should rejoice. And that's exactly what this last point calls us to do. Verse 6, the reaffirmation of praise. To the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us and the Beloved One. Paul ends where he begins. He starts by praising God and he concludes by praising God. And friends, this should be our response too. In fact, there are two responses and applications here and then we're going to close our time together and we're going to take communion and we're going to sing to this glorious God. First, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ this morning, if God has graciously called you and you have responded to His call, if you are in Him, find rest this morning. Find assurance this morning. Comfort, hope in the eternal, sovereign, electing love and predestining purpose of God towards you. Today, as you grow in the knowledge and the grace of God the Father. I know this is a difficult passage of Scripture, but here we just want to be faithful to what the text says. And as we grow in our knowledge of God, we are given every reason to rise up and shout to the praise of the glorious grace. Of His glorious grace. And this is all because of God's grace. It's all unmerited favor that God has given to His creation. The creation that was corrupted by sin. And it's all because of Christ. We are in Him. And one day when we stand before the throne of God, we'll be presented as holy and blameless. The Bible says you'll be given a crown. And it also says that we're going to take a look at that crown and be reminded and we will know all the more clearly that we were chosen in Christ, predestined in Christ, redeemed in Christ, forgiven in Christ, secure in Christ, and we will place that crown at the foot of the One who earned it. And we'll proclaim to the praise of His glorious grace for all eternity. Second, if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, the Bible pr pr tells us the answer. Repent. 
Turn to Christ. If you feel any inclination this morning to turn from your sin and turn to God, that is not you. For no one comes to the Father who is not called. God has done and is doing a work of grace in you that you must respond to. Respond to Him today and join us in praising God for His glorious grace in which He has lavished on us in the Beloved One. Let's pray. God, words cannot describe what You have done for us. Lord, I pray that this is a a moment in which faith is ignited. Mission Church would join in shouting to the praise of His glorious grace that we would now leave here this morning equipped with a greater knowledge of who You are and what You've done on our behalf. And that we would leave here with zeal to live on mission to proclaim this good news of the Gospel. This should be a a fire that lights evangelism in us. That should drive us to proclaim the good news of the Gospel in every space and place that we live and work and have fun. This should be an empowering message to equip us for the work that You've called us to. Lord, I thank You for Your church. I thank You for what You're doing through us here in Las Vegas. And Lord, we just... We ask, Lord, that You're glorified by us. We love You and we thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.